0: Everybody and welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. This is a podcast for any feminist who feels overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do in 2020 and still worries that they are not doing enough. I am Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. And this is an episode where we're going to talk about love or the biological version of love, which is to say attachment. It's a topic I talk about a, whole, a lot for the last 25 years I've been teaching about attachment. And so This is another one I mentioned in the trust episode that I was like, we should talk about attachment because people find it helpful. Uh, And so that's what we're going to do. And Amelia is going to sing examples of the concepts that I'm going to talk about.
1: Yeah. From like musicals and stuff.
0: From like musicals and stuff. From musicals. Not in stuff.
1: Not in like, not in like, I'm going to sing this and perform it way. But like, I'll illustrate them so people can be like, oh, yeah, that song.
0: Oh, yeah, that song. Or you can look it up if you want to. Yeah. They're almost all Sondheim, let's face it.
1: Because <laughs> if somebody's going to write a show that reflects a complex relation dynamic, yeah, right. it's
0: Sondheim. Okay. okay. So in the end, we're ultimately going to be talking about four behavioral markers of attachment, three styles of attachment, and three dynamics of relationships, technically four dynamics of relationships. And I'm going to help try and help us not end on a dark note because ultimately that fourth relationship dynamic is the happy one. Okay, are you ready? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Love starts on the day you're born. On the day you're born, if you're human, you are underbaked. Humans are born much earlier than they need to be right because of this thing that in biology is called the cephalopelvic disproportion that is a disproportion between the size of our heads and the size of our pelvises because two of the main things that make humans humans are their ability to stand upright on their two feet and these great big giant Fucking brains that require these great big giant fucking heads. So when it comes to giving birth, we've got a combination of these little narrow hips that are part of why we can stand upright and the great big giant heads of our great big giant headed babies coming through that little narrow pelvis, the cephalopelvic disproportion. Does that make sense so far?
1: Yeah. So we have to be born before our brains are. Totally baked.
0: Yeah. Evolution's solution to this is for us to be born at a stage of development unlike almost any other species. So like when a horse is born, how long is it before that horse can run? Minutes. Maybe hours, right? Yeah. How long is it before a human can run after they're born? Years. Couple of years, right? Yeah. It's ridiculous. We cannot run away from predators when we're born and it's so that we can be physically born out of... An individual who can walk upright. Mm -hmm. We cannot feed ourselves because our brains aren't that well developed. We can't clean ourselves from an infectious disease. We can't even thermoregulate particularly well. If you leave a baby on the ground overnight, it will just freeze to death if it's not eaten by a bear first. Babies. (laughs) It's dark. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But babies are a lot of work. They keep you awake all night. Uh, You have to carry them with you everywhere they go, and they just get heavier and heavier. They smell weird. They need to have their diapers changed. They make a lot of noise. They need your time and attention. When you've got, like, other shit you need to get done, right? If babies were not so cute, we would leave them by the side of the road.
1: This is the price we pay for higher order thinking.
0: Absolutely, fucking 100%. And cuteness (laughs) is, like, the secret weapon of the baby. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Look how that big my cuteness. eyes are.
0: Yes. It I know I'm loud. I smell terrible. Answer. For some reason, uh, one of your stepdaughters really loves the idea of neoteny. Oh, yeah, she does. She, <laughs> so, she used the word
1: neoteness this weekend she was visiting. And, <laughs> really? Yeah, she used it spontaneously. Look at that neoteness, <laughs> or she's really neoteness, she pointed out some actress or something. And yeah. does she
0: still know what it means?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She used it correctly.
0: So neotinus is a technical term for looking like a baby. And looking like a baby means that you got great big giant eyes right in the center of the face and a little, like, turned up nose and a little smile and a little tiny chin and a big sort of domed forehead. That's a baby face. When we think of baby face, that's what we think of.
1: I think she identifies with it so much because she herself is very much... You know, structured that way. Her face is, she has huge Absolutely. eyes and a little, forehead. Pert little nose. Yeah, yeah.
0: She's, yeah. yeah, she is extremely neotenous. I think she's
1: really glad to have that word to explain why she looks the way she does,
0: why her face is the way it is. Because she looks different from her sister in that way. And both of That's them true. are very beautiful. Very
1: beautiful. But she definitely but has really like a big eyed,
0: like, yeah. Round faced, mm-hmm. little pert little nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so neotonist, that's what that means. And it like does something biologically to us when we see a face like that. Where we just go, oh, little baby face. So I recently purchased a little mm. light up incandescent light Grim Reaper. For Halloween. Yeah, at Target. You can find, if you look up Sizel incandescent Grim Reaper, you will find this adorable fucking Grim Reaper. S-I-S-A-L. Yeah, it's the... I think it's Sissel. It might be Sissel. I might be
1: wrong. It doesn't
0: matter. S-I-S-A-L. Please email us and let us know how to pronounce (laughs) S-I-S-A-L. It is a fiber from which they make incandescent Grim Reapers that are neotenous. These adorable fucking faces, all cartoon characters are neotenous. Charlie Brown characters, neotenous. All cartoon characters. So that cuteness is there that we're like wired to respond to it because that kickstarts evolution's answer to this problem of our underbaked babies.
1: It is Sisal. Somebody, oh, Oh, it's Sisal.
0: For once, I pronounced a thing right. You did. Okay, so parenthood comes to people in a lot of different ways, but ultimately there is a moment that happens when a child comes to you, they hand you the one, and they say, here, this one's yours. Keep it alive. (laughs) And something happens in your chemistry. The cuteness of the child activates the attachment mechanism in your brain. There is this flood of oxytocin and neuro and biochemicals that flood the adult, which feels um, so Christopher Hitchens, who is now dead and is not known for being a touchy feely type of person mm-hmm. by any means. He wrote a whole <laughs> book means. criticizing Mother Teresa. Yeah. And yet he's the person I quote when I talk about this feelings. He says, it's like your heart is running around in someone else's body. Yeah. That's attachment. It feels like someone has grabbed your heart, plonked it into someone else's body, and now that person is running around with your heart inside them. Mm -hmm. That's attachment. The same thing happens to the baby in parallel um, it happens in at a different time scale and in different ways but baby and adult caregiver have this bond this chemical biological bond between the two of them that is built in to solve the problem of what a pain in the ass babies are
1: <laughs> Hey by the way Sissel is a, a, a valid alternate pronunciation <laughs>
0: You know what? You know what I like about this? I know that you're actually listening this week. <laughs> and that makes me feel good. Because next week we're going we're gonna to talk about your class. Yeah. And I'm mostly just going to like sit here yeah. and I'm making decisions now yeah. about how much attention to pay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I took a nap before, so I have
1: a little more energy today oh, than I did last week.
0: That's exciting. Anyway. So you have this biological system that's there to bond the adult caregiver to the offspring so that no matter how many times in the middle of the night the baby cries, no matter how frustrated and grumpy you are, no matter how much you are disliking the experience, like Fucking nothing will stop you from getting up to help a child in distress. Nothing will stop you. If you see that child running into the road for the fifth time after you've told them, don't run into the fucking road, you are still going to run after them and grab them out of the road. That's attachment. It's not necessarily fun. No. But it is intensely powerful. Oh, I've
1: had conversations with mothers, all mothers, recognize that motherhood, the sensation of attachment to a child is... Vicious and violent, yeah. Like I've talked to a mom who's like, she has a master's degree, she's a librarian, she's really intellectual, but when a teacher like kind of was sort of snotty about her kid, she's like, I wanted to roam those hallways with an axe and chop her head off. Like I've never yeah. had feelings like this before, but I wanted to kill her.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> she's attached. She like
1: knew it was wrong, but she's like, man, my my body wants to smash.
0: Because as far as her body was concerned, that teacher was attacking the mother's own heart, beating in that other person's body. Like, how fucking dare you? And as human givers, as people cast in the role of people whose moral obligation it is to give, like, it is so much easier to feel protective and defensive of some other body than our own. Yeah. So, like, every ounce of protective energy that we do not spare for ourselves gets channeled into this attachment behavior, right? Yeah. So at adolescence this hardware gets co-opted by the chemistry of adolescence to switch from adult caregiver to in and infant attachment to peer to peer attachment but in both adult caregiver and infant attachment behaviors and peer to peer attachment behaviors we see parallels and these are the four behavioral markers of attachment are you ready yeah So these are the behavioral markers. The first one is proximity seeking. So this is how to know whether or not someone is your attachment object. The first behavioral marker is proximity seeking, and it's all about how good it feels to be close to your attachment objects for adult caregivers. And I want to mention that the reason I say adult caregivers is because not everyone who is a child's attachment object necessarily is their parent. And I don't just mean step parents. I also intend to be inclusive of people who are raised in group homes or orphanages like every infant attaches in some way or somehow to adult caregivers. And we're going to talk about the different ways attachment happens in different circumstances, but I'm using adult caregivers purposely. If you're wondering, like, why don't you just say parents or moms? It's because I don't mean parent or mom. I mean adult caregivers. So
1: as a as a teacher who, like, knows what it is to attach to children and to feel like I care for them, as, you know, in this, like, adult caregiver way, it is just a lot, like... Parenty feelings yeah. I have for my stepchildren. It's like a little miniature version of that. I I am okay with the idea of calling it parenthood. It is a kind of parenthood. And anyway.
0: Yeah, I use I use the word adult caregiver mainly from the point of view of a person who's attached to someone who is not their parent. Like yeah. that's not my parent, but that was my attachment object when I was a kid.
1: Parent or guardian. As yeah. it's all over the place on permission slips.
0: I've been using you're right, parent or guardian as it says. Um, but I actually taught this in a group where someone raised their hand and told me that they were raised in a group home. They were an orphan in a world where there's not that many orphans. Yeah. And that was when I explained the reason I'm using a adult caregiver is because I'm not saying these are your parents. So proximity seeking. So if you are a parent, you're gonna be familiar with proximity seeking because this is, if you've tried to just like go into the bathroom and have 30 seconds of alone (laughs) time while you pee Mm -hmm. and like little toddler fingers appeared under the bathroom doors going, (laughs) Ma, 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 me coming out. Mm-hmm. That's that's proximity seeking. The deal with proximity seeking is, it's just about how good it feels to be close to your attachment object. When it is the adolescent version, proximity seeking might be more like walking past your attachment object's locker or reading all their Facebook posts back to two thousand eight. If you're Freddie Ansford Hill and My Fair Lady, is just standing on the street where they live. Mm-hmm. I have often walked down the street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. It's just on the street where you live, just being where they are. Just, it just feels so good. So that's uh, the first out of four behavioral markers is proximity seeking. Now, here's the important thing to know. Remember how we talked about how human babies are underbaked? Yeah, like brownies. They're just like doughy, goopy in the middle because they kind of protect themselves from predators. They cannot clean themselves to prevent infectious disease. They can't feed themselves. They can't even thermoregulate. Here's the thing. When you're an infant, your life literally depends on your adult caregiver coming when you need them. Mm -hmm. So finding someone who feels that good to be with, it's not just about, oh, this person feels so great to be around. It's once I've found somebody who feels this great to be around, now when something bad goes wrong, I've got someone to go to and I'll feel safer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So so the second behavioral marker then is safe haven. And this is about When you have a terrible, awful, no good, very bad day and you get home to your, your attachment object there, like when you have that difficult day, they're the person that you reach out to, to make you feel better. So how this looks in child adult caregiver relationship is when the child like falls down and hurts themselves, who do they run to? That is their safe haven. Yeah. Yeah. That's their attachment object. It's a behavioral marker of attachment, the person you run to when you fall down. In adulthood, that looks more like you have a difficult day at home. And like when you get home, you like talk about your difficult day and snuggle with your attachment object. Mm -hmm. And it feels so good. If behavioral marker number one, proximity seeking is about how good it feels to be with this person. Behavioral marker number two is about how good it feels to be comforted by this person when something goes wrong, You feel much better when that person is there. So what you're saying is
1: that we have one attachment system, and it functions one way in our infancy, but that same attachment system is the one that gets used when we become adolescents and we start seeking relationships with people outside our family.
0: Yeah, and you'll see parallel behaviors that illustrate attachment in both different contexts. Yep, gotcha. Behavioral marker number three, separation distress. So behavioral marker number one was... Proximity seeking. Proximity seeking. It feels so good to be near you. Behavioral marker number two was? The one where you go to
1: the person when you need help.
0: Safe haven. Safe haven. Not only does it feel so good to be around you, but when things go wrong, you're where I want to be because it feels so good to be around you. Then we get to behavioral marker number three, where one, it feels so good to be around you. Two, when things go wrong, I want to be with you because it feels so good. And now separation distress, behavioral marker number three, When you go away, that is actually a source of distress. So the way this looks, (laughs) a lot of caregivers of preschoolers and kindergartners will recognize that your child may have had um, some distress on the first day of school or preschool, right? Yeah. I'm going to make the noise. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah that. that's that's the noise that that's, that's 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 the noise of a four-year-old yeah
0: exactly and what it is remember your life and as as a child your life literally depends on your attachment object being there when you need them yeah and so when you watch your attachment object get in the car and drive away while you're still at this place Yes. As far as your body's concerned, you could live, you're being abandoned to your death. When you're an infant, you have this like screaming, like abandonment, I'm being left to my own death no matter what feeling. If you are just like in distress and crying and nobody comes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And eventually, usually somebody does come. We know that that happens because if they didn't, you would literally die. So that's separation distress, what that looks like in adulthood. I usually insert a story about you at this point. Yeah. Separation I distress. I remember
1: very distinctly, yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you want to tell that story?
1: Uh, Yeah. When I, my husband and I were first together, he was a high school choral director. He was for a long time. And the first time that we were together and he went away on tour with his high school choir, they went to Europe for eight days and he was gone and I was at home and I was so un- like physically uncomfortable i was like squirming and like i couldn't stand still and i was like where? yeah i was homesick i was homesick and it was because he was gone
0: yeah you were the one who felt homesick even though you were the one who was at home i was literally
1: at home in my home but i yeah it didn't feel like home because he wasn't there because he
0: is your home yeah. exactly yeah so when two, per- two people have this attachment and a person goes away, you feel separation distress. This is not uh, a sign of a dysfunction in a relationship. Uh, we're gonna talk about different attachment styles, but in a healthy relationship, you know that your attachment object is going to come back As an infant and a child, you don't necessarily have the capacity to think about the future and know that when your attachment object goes away, they're going to come back. You learn that gradually over the course of your life. So by the time you get to adulthood, you may miss your attachment object desperately as an adult. And your body may be pretty sure that, like, oh, no, if they go away, I'm going to die. But you as an adult can tell the child within you, My partner's coming back. My attachment object is coming back. If we just hold still, if we can just hold on to this moment, that person's going to be there for us.
1: Yeah. What was going on with me is that my body was worried that it was being abandoned. And I did not. This was a long time ago. So this is way before I had any, like, ability. Yeah, you've been
0: together for more than 20 years. Yeah,
1: more than 20 years. So this is a long time ago. Um, And this is before I had any kind of understanding of, like, that my body would tell me things. But in this case, this is one of those rare times that the noise from my body was so loud that I could tell something was wrong. And uh, I was really surprised to be like, why do I have these like really intense feelings? (laughs) Yeah, it was, yeah.
0: And let's mention here that one of the best things about being human is we have more than one important relationship in our lives at a time. (laughs) Yeah, And those other relationships, those other people are safe places for us to land when our primary attachment object isn't necessarily there. Yeah. Okay. So here we are at the third behavior. Behavior marker number one was? Proximity seeking. Behavior marker number two was? Safe haven. Behavior marker number three? Something about abandonment. Separation distress. (laughs) And then behavioral marker number four is secure base. So what this looks like in childhood, like so let's imagine a toddler who's, you know, learning to play independently, sitting by themselves over in their playpen or whatever the kids have these days playing by themselves, just like doing the thing, whatever. And they have a sudden sense of like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm by myself. What's going on? And they might go walk over to their adult caregiver and touch their knee and be like, hey, just getting some attention from you. And the adult caregiver goes, hey, I'm giving some attention to you. And then the child goes back to playing in their whatever it is the kids are playing with these days. Mm -hmm. That's a secure base. You're just checking in. And as the child grows, that turns into sitting there playing by themselves and just looking over their shoulder and being like captured object right there when I need them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that turns into like the kid goes to school and can remember that their adult caregiver is at home and they're going to go home and they'll they'll be there. Mm -hmm. And that turns into, at college, knowing that they're going to go home at the end of the semester and see their people. Mm -hmm. So we learn to tolerate greater and greater distance because we can hold the people in our hearts, in our bodies, in our memory, in our emotions. Uh, without needing to have them physically present that's part of the process of growing up is learning to sustain attachment in without the literal physical presence of our attachment objects Mm -hmm. so having a secure base means that your body learns that it means that almost all the time when you need your attachment object they're going to come when you need them that's secure attachment that's when you get to secure base where this person is your emotional home (laughs) and olive has having feelings Okay, so we've talked about all four behavioral markers. A secure base is when, in your relationship, you know that your attachment object will come back if they go away. And your attachment object knows that you're going to come back if you go away. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So about half of people in North America grow up with a secure attachment style because they have a secure base, which is to say that most of the time... When they need their adult caregiver, when they need their attachment object, their attachment object comes when they cry, right? Mm-hmm. About half. And that's, you're not gonna be surprised to learn that that's associated with all sorts of like positive mental health outcomes, more healthy and satisfied sex life. Cause when you get to adulthood, sex becomes an attachment behavior. And uh, turns out when you have a better mental health and better relationships, you have better sex. Oh my God, no way. I know. I know, but some people, and no adult caregiver is perfect. No adult caregiver can come every time you cry or immediately, like you're not doing harm to a child if you don't always come immediately. In fact, you may be doing harm if you do always come immediately, especially as a child is developing more and more autonomy. The process of becoming an adult is the process of taking on responsibility for meeting your own needs. I'm gonna say that sentence again more slowly because it's important. The process of becoming an adult human is the process of taking on responsibility for meeting your own needs. You gradually learn to feed yourself and regulate your bowels and urine. You learn to count and do chemistry and drive and then you go to college and then you support your parents in their old age. The process of becoming an adult is the process of taking on responsibility for meeting your own needs.
1: But that doesn't mean total independence. You still require no, attachment. No, the
0: bullshit thing about being human <laughs> is that we literally need connection with other people. Different people have different intensities of this need for belonging and closeness and connection, but everybody has some. It is the one drive, the one biological need we have for which we depend on other people. We cannot get it met without the participation of some other willing peer. God damn it. Mm -hmm. So therefore, and remember, this stems from a biological reality that if your adult caregiver does not come for you when you're a child, then you could literally die. So if you are raised early in your life in an environment where not necessarily the case that your attachment object is going to show up when you're in distress. Or if they do show up, they might be one person some of the time and another person other times. This can happen for all kinds of reasons. Maybe you're uh, living in a place where there are lots and lots of other young people who need to be cared for and a limited number of adults. Maybe you're living in a home where uh, your adult caregivers need to work three jobs just to keep a roof over your head. Maybe you're living in a home where your parents are experiencing mental health issues or substance abuse issues. So your parent is one person when they show up some of the times, like it's happy dad now and depressed dad next time. Mm -hmm. So you have this instead of a secure attachment style, you develop an insecure attachment styles, and here is where I'm going to grossly oversimplify what the research tells us and tell you that there are two insecure attachment styles. It is not even remotely as simple as, like, there are just the two. It is absolutely possible for some people to bring out secure attachment in you and other people to bring out insecure attachment in you. If you've got insecure attachment, some people might bring out one style of attachment in you and other people bring out another style of insecure attachment in you. So you're like, this person makes me feel banana pants. That's because that's how that works. Different people bring out different attachment styles in you. So... One of the ways for a young person to cope with the risk that their adult caregiver might not always be for them when they need them is with anxious attachment. So this means that you grasp onto your adult caregiver and will not let them go. So this is the preschooler or kindergartner who clings to their adult caregiver's ankle or knee and like has to be dragged across the floor and will not let go that's an anxious attachment style the way this looks in adults is where you constantly have to be like with you're anxiously driven to be constantly with your attachment object because you feel anxious and uncomfortable that if they ever go away they're going to realize that um you don't truly deserve love and they're going to leave you Uh not not to not to be just like stark about it but that's that's what anxious attachment is Uh uh-huh So one way to deal with the risk that your attachment object might not come back is by holding on and never letting go. Another way to deal with the risk that your attachment object might not come back is by never attaching very strongly and onto any specific individual, but by just holding on like a little bit to a wide range of people. And if somebody feels like they're getting too close, you actually push them away to create distance in order to reduce the risk that you could have so many eggs invested in that attachment basket that you would lose too much if they do eventually go away. Because what your body is learning, like this is not an intellectual decision babies are making early on in their lives, like, hmm, I'm noticing there's about a 60-40% ratio of when my attachment object does come and when they don't come. Mm -hmm. What that suggests to me is I ought to make a different strategic decision in the way that I emotionally bond with them. That is not how this is working. Mm -hmm. How it's working is their body is noticing how safe they feel in a relationship and is rewiring the brain in order to compensate and create as safe a context as possible, because again, a baby's life literally depends on making this whole adult caregiver thing work out. Mm -hmm. So the second way is, the first one was called an anxious attachment style, anxious insecure attachment style, and this is an avoidant insecure attachment style. And what this looks like in real life, as adults, peer-to-peer relationships, is that you never attach specifically very deeply to any specific other person. And if somebody moves emotionally closer to you, you create emotional distance. From them. If you're in a relationship with one person, you find yourself uh, not feeling particularly dedicated to that relationship. If you're thinking, oh, these are people who cheat, no, no. In fact, people of every kind of insecure attachment style are more likely to feel uncomfortable in a monogamous relationship and may feel more comfortable in an open relationship of different kinds of structures because then they're not investing just in this one place. If you haven't anxious attachment style, you may be motivated to connect sexually with people outside of your primary relationship because sex in adult relationships is an attachment behavior. And so if you reach out with sexual connection to other people, you increase the amount of attachment you have going on in your life. Mm-hmm. Even if that's not your primary dyad, even if it threatens your connection with your primary relationship, because your body like can't let go of the idea of building more attachment connections. So people vary tremendously in the way anxious and avoidant attachment can show up in their bodies, but you can probably imagine like people in your life who have these different attachment styles, right? And there's a cultural stereotype isn't there between like genders and insecure attachment styles?
1: Definitely. Like if you just
0: like which which gender has the ins- the insecure anxious attachment style? Women. And which has the anxious avoidant attachment style? Men. Right. And that's not really substantiated by the research.
1: It's just a stereotype.
0: Yeah, it's just a stereotype. It does match what our cultural scripts say should be true, but it doesn't seem to map particularly well onto what people's individual experience is. And this is another one of those places where we just don't have the research on anybody outside the gender binary to be able to talk more complexly about how these things work. But it is not at all the case that women are the anxious ones and men are the avoidant ones. That is much too simple for what's actually happening. But here's where we get to the fun part. But let's, this is spaced repetition. (laughs) I'm a fan. The first behavioral marker of attachment is.
1: Well, I've lost the order, but it's the, it's proximity seeking.
0: Proximity seeking. It feels so good to be with this person. Behavioral marker number two. I don't remember what.
1: If we had identified the songs, I'd be able to remember which ones they are in which order. Safe Haven,
0: Safe Haven. Uh, (laughs) Do you remember what the song is? No. What did we use as the song? Because we. I'll come to my garden. Oh, Safe Haven. Rest there in my arms. There I'll see you safely grown and on your way. See if we had identified what the
1: songs were, I'd be able to remember in order.
0: Stay there in my garden. On the street where where you live, free and wild. Come to
1: my garden. That's by Janine Tazori. Just saying, she's a really good
0: composer. Behavior marker number three one is it feels so good. Two is when it feels bad, I go to you because it feels so good to be with you. Three is uh, when you're gone, that's a source of distress. Safe haven? Separation distress. Yeah. Safe haven was number two. Oh, okay. Come to my garden. Yeah. That was like literal safe haven. Yeah. Three was separation distress, which of course was not a day goes by. Yeah. Not a day goes by. You're not somewhere by. here. Yeah. Yeah. Not a single day. You're not somewhere here, part of my life. And you won't go away. So there's hell to pay. And until I die, I'll die day after day after day after day after day after day. day. That's separation distress. time once again. Nails it,
1: yeah. Specifically, that was your reproduction of Bernadette Peters' performance.
0: Bernadette Peters, specifically yeah. Bernadette. her performance. I could tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she I mean, stabs it each one of those day
1: after day. day. <laughs> yeah, Audra McDonald does not perform it that way. She sings with a lot more legato, but you know, they both work. Yeah, obviously.
0: And the fourth behavioral marker was.
1: No, I can't remember. But tell me what the song is, and I'll know what it is.
0: Make our garden grow. Se- secure base. Yes, <laughs> how did you know? What did you think of to be like make our garden grow a secure bit?:
1: It's because it's not just about like being in the garden, but like living in the garden and knowing that you can go do the thing and then come back and they're going to be there and you remember it, even though they're not in front of you right at this moment.
0: Yes, you've been a fool, and so have I, but come and be my wife and let us try before we die to make some sense of life. We're neither pure nor wise nor good. We'll do the best we know. We'll build our house, We'll chop our wood. And make our garden grow. And if anybody Secure wants base.
1: to know what the best performance, the best recording of that song is available to like listen to. It's the 2004 Avery Fisher Hall performance of Candide conducted by Marin Alsop, with the New York Philharmonic and the Westminster Symphonic Choir and Christian Chenoweth. And I forget the tenor's name, but damn, he's good. OK, so you should look that up on YouTube. It's, it's the best recording of that piece I'm
0: pretty sure they'll have it in the so we did an interview many of you will know by now that we did an interview with Brene Brown for her podcast Unlocking Us and I listed this as one of my songs I couldn't live without yeah and I specified this recording so they will have put it in the playlist on Stitcher no Spotify on Spotify the thing is
1: that that Ooh. recording that performance is not available on Spotify so they're gonna pick another one.
0: Oh, yeah mm, so you got to look it up on YouTube yeah yeah
1: no all the ones on Spotify I mean there's several good ones i'm sure but but that one none of them are bad that one from lincoln center is
0: yeah so here we get into the complicated things of what happens when we get two people together with different attachment styles well let's start with a sort of simple thing let's what if we get two people together and they both got anxious attachment styles so these are two people who feel distress. They're worried that uh, if they get too far away from their partner, uh, that person is going to realize that they don't deserve love and is going to leave them. And so we got two people with an anxious attachment style into a relationship together and they like wrap around each other. Um, they never let each other go. I call this the attached at the hip dynamic where they... The real life example that I always turn back to is back when I was in Indiana, some students were like, so I had these friends who they were in a relationship and one night, they're both undergrad, they live in separate apartment complexes. And they were like, we're both going to stay home and do homework tonight. And they agreed to that. But then about an hour later, they were both worried. So they each got in their cars and drove past each other's apartments and saw that the other person's car wasn't there. See, because they were both in their car checking that the other person was home when they said they would be. Mm -hmm. That is the relationship between two people with insecure, anxious attachment styles. It doesn't feel good to be apart, but it doesn't even necessarily feel that good to be together. It can look cute from the outside because this is a couple where they're both sitting in each other's laps all the time. and They look very lovey-dovey, but there's like an anxiety and distress underlying it attached to the hip dynamic.
1: You're saying it's a little bit neurotic. Yes. And when we were trying to pick songs for this, you picked "One Hand, One Heart" from uh, West Side Story. Make of our hands one hand, make of our hearts two hearts. One, one now heart. we begin. Now we
0: start. One hand. One make of our we... hand. Make of our hearts one heart. One of our
1: hearts one heart. Yeah, sorry. A little bit of brain fog still. Um. Anyway. Yeah.
0: Even death won't part us now. Yeah.
1: But actually, I mean, in the context of the thing, it's not intended to be neurotic or negative it's i mean it's it's one of the greatest love songs of all times i've i've been to weddings where they use that as the song where
0: yeah bride in March the same down the way aisle. romeo and juliet on which west side story is based yeah. is supposed to be one of the greatest love stories all the time yeah. but let's look at what that story is two young idiots fall in love and then all hell breaks loose yeah that is not actually right. what love is i get That in the storytelling domain, that is the story we tell about what love truly is,
1: but it is not. I just don't think it's fair to take that out of context and to be like, oh, well, that's definitively neurotic because like most people feel that way about the one hand, one heart. I mean, that's just what it feels like. And I don't think that that's inherently, you know. Yeah problematic
0: out of context if we put it in the context of people who've been like married like if you and malin had that as like the song you danced to at the renewal of your vows when it's been 30 years that's a very different meaning from two fucking 15 year old children (laughs) who've known each other for a a day day and a half
1: (laughs) which is what it actually is i know yeah i got you so what is the song we picked for neurotic um, i loved you once in silence oh yeah i loved you once in silence and misery was all i knew trying so to keep my love from showing all the while not knowing you loved me too yes loved me in lonesome silence your heart locked in dark despair i forget what the next set of words were but you get the point and now, now there's, there's twice, twice as much pain, much pain twice, the twice the pain as hard for, for, us. for us, twice Dispair.
0: the despair, twice the pain for us, yeah. as we had known
1: before. That's from Camelot, to the hip, where yes. Guinevere and Lancelot have like gotten together, extramarital affair from Arthur. And you know what?
0: I'm actually not sure that that actually counts as an attached to the hip dynamic. I think that more counts as the chasing dynamic, which we'll talk about more later. But first, so, so far we've talked about the dynamic between two anxiously attached people. Let's talk about what happens. We've got two avoidantly attached people. Camelot so is one of those people. musicals
1: people think is like super romantic. But when you look at it, I mean, on purpose, the the content of Camelot is actually very dark, very sophisticated, very mature. And uh, it's just. It, people think, oh, Camelot it's so romantic. It's fucking not. Anyway, sorry, keep going. No.
0: <laughs> but this is actually, I mean, one of the things about using Broadway songs to illustrate this is that we tell these stories about what this song means and what love really is. Mm-hmm. And the story behind it is so much more complex and dark and fucked up. And the thing we are like, oh, this is so beautiful. Love is so wonderful. Yeah. But the thing that actually counts as beautiful and wonderful is, first of all, make our garden grow you've been a fool and so have I, but come and be my wife. That's the thing. That's it. That's the real thing. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to what a relationship between two people with secure attachment styles looks like. And it's not going to be the thing. It's not going to be, I loved you once in silence. It's not going to be make of our hands, one hand, make of our hearts, one heart, day after day, one last whatever. It's, Gonna be something else. Okay, so let's get two anxiously attached people together. These are people who uh when they get into a relationship and it feels too close, they go, Oh, that's too close, and they create more distance. So they get together, both in- avoidantly attached, and they both go, Whoa, that's too close, and they pull away from each other, distance. And they both go, oh no, that's too far apart, and they come back together. And then they break up and they back together and they break up and they get back together. And they're distressed when they're together because it feels too close. And they're distressed when they're apart because it feels too far. So they're uncomfortable whether together or apart, but they can't. And like the people around them are like, will you make up your minds? No, they can't because they're not making up their minds. They're making up their bodies. They're in distress all the time because attachment is itself a threat as far as their bodies are concerned. And the song we chose for this was actually just let's call the whole thing off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You say
1: tomato, and I say tomato. You say potato, and I say potato. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato.
0: Let's call the whole thing off. But oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we have to part, then that might break my heart. So you say oysters, will I say ersters. I'll give up oysters and take up oysters, so we know we need each other, so we better call the calling off off. Oh, let's call the whole thing off. That's an extremely, like, gentle, bouncy, lightweight way to describe (laughs) a relationship that is distressing literally all the time, except for in, like, the fleeting moments of togetherness and the fleeting moments of deciding to be apart and then just worry all the time. Okay, so we've seen two anxious folks in a relationship. We've seen two avoidant folks together in a relationship. And then we get what happens when we get an anxious person in a relationship with an avoidant person. So they get into a relationship, and what does the avoidant person do? Run away. They go, oh, that's too close. And they run away. Exactly. And when that partner runs away, what does the anxious partner do? Chase them. They go, hey, that's too far. And when they chase them, the avoidant partner goes, hey, that's too close. No, that's too close and that's too far. And you get the chasing dynamic. What I really love is that when this happens in real life, there is so often a third person chasing the anxious partner who's busy chasing that other avoidant partner. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite ways that this is called the chasing dynamic for that reason. One of my favorite clever strategies in the chasing dynamic is sometimes an avoidant person Will actually attach to maybe another avoidant person, maybe a person who's already in a relationship with someone else that's monogamous, maybe uh, not attracted to people of their gender, or is for any other reason definitely completely not available to them. It is so clever on the part of the biological attachment mechanism to be like, look, I can get some attachment needs met without ever having to risk the potential consequences of an actual relationship with this person Mm -hmm. i can just chase after them be constantly in distress because i would be in distress if i were in a relationship too i'd be in distress if i were alone so i might as well be in distress and and obsessed with someone i can never have not in a relationship but chasing after someone i can never be with Ah. because they will never want me yeah It's not smart. Again, this is not a cognitive decision that you are making. You're not carefully analyzing. You know what? Here's a person who's attracted to me. I know they're not attracted to people of my gender, but boy, I could get a lot of my emotional needs met if I just obsessed about them without Mm. ever... How about I do that? No, your body makes this choice for you Mm -hmm. and it drags you along with it. That is the chasing dynamic. And what what song do we associate with the chasing dynamic? Uh,
1: Was that the one from Into the Woods? Yeah, that's agony. Did
0: I abuse her or show her disdain? Why does she run
1: from me? If I should lose her, how shall I regain the heart she has won from me? Agony beyond power of speech. When the one thing you want is the only thing out of your reach. I got that wrong, but you know. So
0: these are the, the no, that was right. These are the princes from different fairy tales, yeah. Cinderella and Rapunzel. High in her tower, she sits by the hour, maintaining her hair. blithe and becoming and frequently humming a lighthearted air. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Agony! What's as
1: intriguing or half so fatiguing as what's, as out, of what's out of
0: reach? what's out of reach? Am I not sensitive, clever, well-mannered, considerate, passionate, charming, as kind as I'm <sighs> handsome, and heir to do actually a throne? have to sing the whole thing. You are everything maidens could wish for, then why no, do I know, the girl must be mad. You know nothing of madness till you're climbing her hair, and you see her up there as you're nearing her, all the while hearing her agony misery woe though it's different for each always 10 steps behind always 10 feet below and she's just out of reach i'm trying to get to the lyrics at the end that really illustrate it that was it that was
1: the whole song agony that can cut like a knife i must have her too that was it thing about the chasing
0: Thing about the chase. I
1: mean, but then chasing what happens and the chasing next? Chasing is the thing. What happens next is they marry, they get they get the woman that they want, Rapunzel syndrome, they get married, and then in the next act they're chasing Agony someone. New. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Oh well, back to my wife. Yeah. Because one of them has encountered Snow White yeah. asleep in a casket surrounded a by dwarves
1: Entirely of glass. No, it's unbreakable. Inside, don't ask it, a maiden, alas, just as unwakeable and un- what unmistakable. Agony is the way right. always hard. She has skin white as snow. Did you learn her name? No. There's a dwarf standing guard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And I found a tower all around the tower a Thicket of Briar, a hundred feet deep. And it's uh, Sleeping Beauty yeah. this time. Yeah, so it's like the same princes in different fairy tales, and they're already married to other fairy tale princesses, and all well back to my wife is how the reprise ends. And it's pretty hilarious, and I think we spent more time than we needed to talking about the chasing dynamic, but it does show up a lot in musicals. In fact, I might actually be inclined to say that I Loved You Once in Silence is the chasing dynamic.
1: Well, I Loved You Once in Silence is based on the medieval concept of courtly love, um, the our current modern romantic like storytelling version of love comes from the medieval version of courtly love in which the ideal form of love is the love that a man feels for a woman who is unavailable that was an idealized like he, she's married to someone else but you love her in a way that's pure and not just lustful or physical it's just it's that you love her from afar that kind of love was an, uh, an ideal in the middle ages right. and so a lot of our stories are built and on that, that. Is
0: shit is super fucked up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But like it's a yeah. So our a lot of our culture is built on medieval ideals and that's one of them. I was a medieval studies minor in undergrad.
0: Yeah, the corley love is the model for what turned into romance novels mm-hmm. in the middle of the 20th century, which in the 1970s turned into romance novels as we know them, which involved a lot of, I'm going to use the phrase non-consensual sex. Why? Because it's about the chase. It's about having to say no for whatever reason. When someone wanted you a lot, it was about being wanted and having to say no. That tension was the foundation of the whole narrative. And that shit's super fucked up. That is not what happy love looks like in real life. Yeah. Here's what happy love looks like in real life, when you get two people together who both have secure attachment styles. On the surface, there's a little bit of a similarity between two anxious attachment styles, because what I'm going to say is they get together, and it feels really good to be together, and then um, some distance gets created. There's a a relaxing, and ebbing of the closeness, and then they come back together, and then there's a, a flowing back together and an ebbing apart, and a flowing back together and an ebbing apart. And it's not that you're in distress when you're together and therefore you break up and then you're in distress when you're apart and therefore you get back together is that it feels really good to be together and then life happens and you need each other again. So you come back to each other and it feels wonderful to be together. And like having the space to be apart is what makes the opportunity to be together such a gift. This healthy ebb and flow, like healthy relationships don't mean constantly being happy, close to each other all the time. As we say over and over, In the book Burnout and on the podcast, connection is one of the cycles that we move through. We are designed to oscillate into proximity and connection with others, back to autonomy and back into a connection, back to autonomy. That is what a healthy relationship looks like. When you have a secure attachment, you trust that your attachment object is going to be there when you need them. And that that therefore means that you are both free to go out and live your lives and do your stuff and come back to each other. You know that you will always be there to come home to because you are each other's secure bases. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what song we used for this? No. Really?
1: No, I don't remember. Look. Ding, ding. I do a lot of ding, music. Ding, ding.
0: Happy now. Oh. Oh, yeah. Five different crayons. Catching a firefly, setting him free. Happiness is being alone every now and then. And happiness is coming home again. I mean, they just put it explicitly right there in the lyrics. (laughs) Like it could. Happiness is morning and evening. Daytime and nighttime too. For happiness is anyone. And anything at all that's loved by you. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. This is from your Good Man Charlie Brown, the musical that we have known since we were children. Oh, yeah. The music is really hard. I discovered when we were working on, like, a musical version of this. I was like, this shit is not simple. This is not Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) This is hard. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of vocal range. There's weird intervals. Yeah, But your good man, Charlie Brown, the musical, has this song, Happiness, that ultimately is the most sort of concise expression of what genuine love looks like out in the real world. I can totally hear the
1: (laughs) bone chewing. I
0: know. The dogs are chewing on their bones. And that is also what Happiness sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So... I'm going to go back to the dark part so that we can like come to the end in the light part. Remember that when you're an infant, your life literally depends on your adult caregiver. That is not literally true anymore when you're an adult. You totally can survive the loss of your attachment object. But your body doesn't necessarily know that. So when your attachment object goes away, your body is pretty sure you're going to die. That's why Amelia was pacing around Even her body was managing to communicate that something was not right. And that feeling is why they call it heartbreak. They call it heartbreak for a reason, because it really feels like you could potentially die. And the glorious thing about love as it sustains over the long term in a secure relationship is that though you may experience that doubt, though you may experience separation distress, you can always come home to the people who are your secure base, who are your safe haven. That's what love actually does in real life. And I know that saying this over the sound of my dogs munching on their bones (laughs) might be a little not the moral of the story that I'm trying to get to. (laughs) But what this means, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, fuck my attachment style. Yes, attachment style absolutely can change. It is pretty much literally what therapy is for. Mm -hmm. There's a book I'm always recommending to people. I apologize for the title. It's a little bit facetious. The title is How to Be an Adult. And it's very short, but very rapidly, uses slightly different language, not insecure and secure attachment, but talks about how to develop a secure attachment style by um, turning toward the insecure attachment style child within yourself and holding them in a way that you longed to be held in that moment which will help you to be well enough to be in a secure relationship with someone else what i love about david richo's work is that he's clear that the goal is not to be able to meet all of your own needs by yourself that is not the point the goal is to be able to meet I don't know, somewhere between 70 and 90% of your own needs, depending on like what your life situation is and what your individual differences are. Do You do a bunch of it by yourself and some of it you really do totally depend on other people. And that is healthy and normal and how it is supposed to be. An attachment is the biology underpinning what makes this dynamic work. And I will conclude, as I always do, with Rumi Mm -hmm. because there's nothing like a medieval Sufi poet to express what a middle-class white lady is experiencing in 21st century America. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What he said was your task is not to seek for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. What? Your task is not to seek for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it.
1: Wow that sounds like some that sounds like some pop psychology bullshit to me. I mean, I know that it's true. I know, like, I get it. But, like, it sounds like the kind of advice that you get from the, you know, man, the athletic white man who's saying, you know, th- you always get the relationship you want. And the reason you're not finding love is because you don't love yourself enough. But, like, I know that that's actually, you do have to love yourself and, like, be, you have to heal your shit in order to, yeah, it just feels it's very uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, the neoliberal thing they don't talk about is the fact that the reason you seek for all the barriers you have built against love is because you absolutely require love or you will die.
1: But the thing is that society also tells you that those barriers are a mark of your strength and that if you don't have those very barriers, that you're, you know, a wimp, like vulnerability. Yeah, is, they tell
0: you that, that needing the love is uh, yeah, your problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is so the difference between what Rumi is saying and what the athletic affluent white dude is saying, the athletic dude is saying, like, you can meet all your own needs. And Rumi is saying, you have some needs that you can't meet. And the way to get to a place where you can get other people to help you meet those needs you can't meet yourself is to dismantle the walls that your original life, your childhood constructed in you to help you survive. Because you would not have these walls if they were not necessary to get you through the shit show that was your early life. P.S. Congratulations on surviving the shit show that was your early life. But just because <laughs> those walls are the walls that got you through your early life doesn't mean they're the walls that are going to help you sustain a brilliant and connected aliveness in your adulthood. If you are interested in a brilliant and connected aliveness in your adulthood, your task is not to seek for love, but to seek and find within yourself all the barriers you have built against it. P.S. Congratulations on making through the shit show.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a shame that the shit show really rewards the barriers.
0: It sure does. <laughs> Insert the collected works of Brene Brown here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you're armored, that's because you're rewarded for wearing armor your whole life. Mm-hmm. I know, shit, it turns out the key to happiness is... Taking off your motherfucking arm. Mm -hmm. Damn it. It's always compassion. And in this case, it is self-compassion, which is the worst. the hardest one. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think that's this episode of the Feminist Survival Project. If any of this was written, it was actually written by both of us. I'm Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. And uh, if any of this uh, has music to it, it is mostly by Amelia. <laughs> but singing other, mostly Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> a little bit of other people, too. Right. And whoever wrote Your Good Man Charlie Brown. Yeah, I have no And idea. Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. If you want to uh, connect with us, we're on the social media at FSP2020, mostly on the Instagrams, a little bit on the Twitters. And... We are approaching the end of this series, or at least this season of this series, and we are asking you for a favor. If you've made it this far in this episode, damn, (laughs) thanks for listening. And also, our last episode, which is going to be released the day before the election, is going to be what we call one important thing. So, a thing we both do in our classes is ask our students to reflect on one important thing they learned within a particular class or lesson or uh, over the course of a semester. They tell us what's one, it doesn't have to be like the most important thing, but what's one important thing you learned? And we would like to hear from you. If you go to our Instagram, you'll be able to comment what's one important thing that you learned from the podcast. And what we're going to do is compile those answers. If you email feministsurvivalproject2020 at gmail.com, put one important thing in the subject heading or something similar to that, we're going to collect people's answers to figure out what it is over the course this year that we've shared that has been valuable to people. Um, So it'll be sort of a summary and a conclusion and it won't be about us and most of the podcast has been about like us surviving the shit show that we knew 2020 was going to be but we frankly had no idea. And we did not want it to be as right as we are, but we want it the conclusion to be about all of us, not just Amelia and me, but all of us, what we have all gotten, how we've helped each other survive 2020. So if you go to our Instagram or you email us, FeministSurvivalProject2020 at gmail.com, let us know what's one important thing you've learned in the podcast. And we'll, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the last episode. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. Based. Repetition. <laughs> I'm a fan. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.